Randolph Shepherd Podcast, promoting blind entrepreneurship and independence. And now here's the dynamic duo, Nikki Gaykos and Terry Smith. Welcome to Year One Podcast 10 of We Are Randolph Shepherd. And first, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the National Association of Blind Merchants, USI, Tyler Technologies, Southern Food Services, Coca-Cola, Sodexo, Three Square Market, and Translucent. Terry, how are you? I'm doing great, Nikki. Great to be back with you again this month. Uh, a lot's been happening. Uh, you know, somehow we always manage to work sports into this. And we probably don't want to talk much baseball because both our teams got eliminated right out of the bat in the playoffs. My Cardinals went down and your Mets went down. And you know, the Dodgers went down and so did, uh, who knows, well, the Yankees did make it so far and, um, We'll see. That's going to be an interesting season with Houston. And also, Terry, well, we, we will mention that that was one hell of a football game the other day. And congratulations to uh, Tennessee for, uh, for coming up and beating Alabama for the first time in years and scoring 52 points. That was an exciting game. And um, we are taking collections for Terry and the Tennessee Vols to repay for the goalposts um, there <laughs> at the game and uh, for the 140. But congratulations. I know there's Still a half a season to go in football, but that's uh, that's a big win for you guys. So congratulations. You do have uh, stuff to talk about. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate it. And you, you would not believe how crazy this fan base has gone. That was, I mean, that was that was an amazing game. And this fan base is just, because we've not had anything to cheer for in so long. But, uh, but Nikki, um, last month we were in Atlantic City. We had blast on the boardwalk. Um, we mentioned it last time, but, uh, you know, that thing turned out really, really well, didn't it? It did. I got a lot of emails and phone calls saying it was one of the best ones ever. Uh, Vistar has already been in touch with us to uh, for next year already. They'll have a date by next week uh, to, because they were excited about our turnout. Um, I was just at another conference, just got home, uh, and people, they were talking about how great it was to see many blind entrepreneurs there and um, and to talk to many of them, and I, I just thought the whole thing was great because it's there's lots more than that. You got to talk to people, which is huge, and stuff like that. So many new products out there, and you know, it, it, like I said before, uh, it, it, the enthusiasm was was high. Uh, the weather was perfect, and it, it was great to see uh, people out again and see people for the first time in a couple of years. Awesome, uh, you know, it's it's sort of. I've always found it interesting because I got the same reaction you got. People telling me and texting me and emailing me saying this was the best blast ever. And, you know, we had 185 people, I think, registered. We had some walk-ups. I don't know what the final number was. We had 185 plus 200. Uh, and um, it was all content-driven. You know, we didn't do all the bells and whistles and all that. And I think there's something to be said about that, that you know, the smaller kind of meeting like that where we could do state reports and people could tell what's going on in those states. And um, But, um, you know, I, I, I'd really like to do one more big blast. And, you know, hopefully we'll have an announcement coming out soon that maybe we'll do one of those in the next couple of years. But uh, uh, I would like to do one more big major one. We get everybody together and, um, and, and have five or 600 people and, and feel the energy that goes with it because there's nothing in our field more energetic 
more motivating, more driving than one of our last conferences. They're, they just get they get you pumped up and get you going. You're right, and 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 but I mean, blast has become such a, a staple and and stuff like, and I think that's going to be our job to get people back to work, whether it's in food service or whatever it takes. We need to get our people back to work. We need to get SLAs ready to travel again. Uh, you know, I, I, I will say that, you know, that it was great to have GSA there live. It was great to have the Navy there live. I'm still upset that RSA could not come live. Um, but you know what? Those are things that if we're going to do this blast, and I, I want to do one, I want to do two. Um, but I want to get our guys back to work in some some way and, and get SLAs back to being able to travel and be part of this to make some major moves and changes to Randall Shepard so we can get back um, and, and, and making, you know, become real entrepreneurs and look for different, different ways and changing regulations, whatever it takes, but that's going to be something. And then maybe we can celebrate that at a blast of all the new changes that we've come up with. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, Nikki, this is the month of Thanksgiving. And uh, so what you tell me something, what, what is it that, you're really thankful for either personally or, or, or specifically with Randolph Shepard, one of each maybe. What, what's something that you're really thankful for? Well, you know, Terry, it, it's it, it, 30 years ago, I became a licensed blind vendor in Randolph Shepard. I had never heard of it before. I had been blind and was part of the VR system in, 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 in New Jersey. Um, but to me, it's, it's and it, it showed in Atlantic City to the, the friends that I have made, you know, I think of when I think of the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas coming up, I think of two things, family and friends. And uh, the friends that I've made in the Randall Shepherd community have, you know, have been some of the best friends I've ever had in my life. And I'm so glad that I've met many of them and, and got involved in Randall Shepherd. And then, of course, family. Some have become family, you know, close and um, and stuff. So I, I think of that. And, and, and so both family and, and, and friends. And, and and family that, um, and I know this will be tough for you, Terry, and I just want to give you a, a, a shout out right here, you know, in, during our podcast, that your sister, who was a great lady, and, 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 and we lost her this year, and it will be your first Thanksgiving for you and your mom without her. Um, but I just want to say that our prayers and thoughts are with her and with you and, you know, my family that, you know, you, you know we've been through this before, but my mom and dad and brother all died early and gone. But. You know, so I think about them a lot, but I think about the great friends and family that, that I've, I've met and stuff like that. That's that's my thoughts for the holiday. Well, I guess if I was going to answer the same question, I would say, obviously, family, uh, as far as I, and as you mentioned, I'm very fortunate to have my mom still with me at 90 years old, still living independently, driving, doing everything uh, on her own. And that's just amazing. And I'm, I'm very thankful that she's able to to do that and thankful that I've got a healthy family and four great grandchildren. And uh, so, uh, you know, on a personal level, uh, I've got, I, I'm, I'm blessed. I have a lot to be thankful for. Two things on the, on the business side of it. I'm thankful for this opportunity that I have had to work with the National Association of Blind Merchants. Uh, I knew when I retired from um, the state of Tennessee, that I would have other opportunities. As a matter of fact, I had multiple job offers uh, where I, who I could have gone to work with. And uh, but the but the NABM gave me an opportunity to do stuff that that I enjoy and that I feel that we that we 
uh, are able to make a difference. And so I'm very thankful to you who showed up at my retirement party with Kevin Worley and told me I was going to come to work with you. I laughed at you. And but a few days later, I was working for you. So uh, I th I, so I'm thankful for, for, for that. Another thing I'm thankful for, I'm thankful that we're at a juncture in our history that I think we can really make a difference. And the pandemic has sped this thing up, um, you know, but I think we can really modernize our regulations. I think we can overhaul this program in a way that's a positive way. And, uh, you know, I would like to see that turnaround start, um, you know, before, before I retire anyway. Uh, so uh, retire again. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I'm thankful that we're at that position that we got some momentum and we can really make some positive change. And I couldn't agree with you more. I said at, at blast that, you know what, it, it, we're going to get out of this and I want to be part of it that we got out of it and how we made, I want to, I don't want to leave now. I want to leave when we, when we made a positive change and created a new Randall Shepard, a new exciting dynamic program and uh, stuff. And the other thing I will say too is it's a great time to eat. It's great food at the holidays and football. And it's great to be like with that. And, and I'll, so I have to throw that in too. Well, um, before we get to our special guest, Nikki, we always do what's up. That's where you get 20 seconds to say what's up, what's going on, so anything you want to talk about. So, Nikki, what's up? What's up is that Blast was a great success, uh, that I just traveled to Illinois for their meeting and then went to SHFM in, in Denver. So it's back to traveling again, and uh, we'll talk about it later, but I got to go visit with you and go up to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and, and visit there. Uh, so what's up is that we're getting out and uh, we're we're seeing people again, and and that's exciting. I know that you were in Mississippi uh, prior to this podcast, so um, that's what's up with me. What's up with you, Ter? Well, I'm going a little nostalgia here. Uh, I was uh, um, my son uh, wanted a an old fashioned record player for for his birthday uh, this past summer, and he was bugging me and bugging me and bugging me to get my old albums, which were in a storage building, uh, and bring them to him. And he wanted because he, he he wanted those. And so I got a bunch of them out, threw them in the suitcase, went to Houston, and rolled in with all of those old records. And it was so cool to to, to look back albums that I hardly even remembered. And of course, the artists. I mean, I'll be curious if our, our listeners remember Uriah Heep and Pink Floyd and all those bands back in the late 60s and early 70s, The Doors, all of those albums. And uh, it was just sort of cool to, 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 to go back through some of those albums and, and uh, you know, instant, uh, instant memories. So that's what's up with me. And I would say some of those I remember, and some of them I don't remember. I should, but there was some time to get to those days. <laughs> but you know what, Terry? We, I, you know, uh, Nick, Nikki's Bar and Grill was opening up last month, and we're going to open it up right now again and welcome some guests. And let's so do it. Let's, oh, let's open it up. Hey, guys. Nikki's Bar and Grill is just right over there. Let's go over and see if we can see Nikki and talk to him a little bit. Sounds great. Let's do it. Welcome. And I know that you uh, you guys are here. Welcome. I know you got your state worker. So uh, it is past hours uh, here at Nikki's Bar and Grill. But I hope you have a, a cocktail or a drink or a soda or a pop or whatever we say around the country. Welcome. We're glad you're here for our podcast. 
And uh, Terry, why don't you have them introduce themselves so people know who they are, we know a little bit about them, and then we'll, we'll get into this. Yeah, this is like uh, old, old home days for me, going back, talking to our agency friends. You know, I had 20 or well, 35 years working with the state agency, and we brought back some, uh, some, some, some good friends who are BEP directors across the country, and so we can uh, hear, hear what they got to say about some stuff. Um, so we have Tyrell from Connecticut, we have Chris from Nevada, and we have Jim from Washington. And Tyrell, kick us off, introduce yourself, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely, thank you, Terry. So I'm Tyrell Sampson, and uh, my preferred drink of choice, since we're at Nikki's Bar, would be a rum and coke. So uh, please keep those coming for today's interview. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tyrell Sampson, I am the program supervisor for the state of Connecticut. Um, I've been with this agency, Aging and Disability Services, my entire career for state government, which is about 17 years. Um, I've sat in just about every seat up to this seat um, within our program over the years. So pretty versed, well versed uh, in, within our program. Uh, state of Connecticut right now, we currently have 22 operations and, um, and I look forward to today's discussion. Thank you. Hey, Jim. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, fellas. Uh, Jim Hammond from Washington State. I am the business enterprise program manager for our state. I've held this position for about three and a half years. Prior to coming into this position, I come from uh, 10 to 12 years of a restaurant background, owner, operator. I have uh, another decade of corporate food service in the likes of Fortune 100 companies. Uh, many of which you know in the IT field or tech field. And then I spent pr right prior to this work, 10 years in child nutrition and hunger relief uh, in the inner, in some inner cities uh, in our country. So all told 30, well over 30 plus years in running small, medium and large uh, food service operations in a variety of industries that make it ripe for helping our, our blind entrepreneurs be successful in our work. Awesome, and we've got another person with a lot of food service background in Nevada. Uh, Chris Mazza, tell us about yourself. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, Jim, we could probably share some, some good war stories. Uh, I have uh, been in this position, the uh, Chief Enterprise Officer for the uh, Ben Program here in Nevada for just about five years now. Uh, prior to that, I have an extensive restaurant background. Uh, I have a degree in hospitality management from UNLV and spent most of my career in the restaurant business down on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, fortunate enough to be running the, uh, the busiest restaurant in the country at the time when I was uh, running Margaritaville uh, back in the early 2000s. So definitely have that background. Happy to be out of it now, I will say that, and, and certainly enjoy what I'm doing now. And uh, I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying this Manhattan right here as we uh, continue this discussion. Uh, well, I'm, ha I'm having my Tito's on the rocks here. So, uh, Jim, you didn't tell us, what are you drinking? Oh, I'm, I'm not. I've got a Cuban cigar. <laughs> All right. You got, awesome. Well, many you haven't objected, so I just went ahead and lit it up. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. I got some to share if anybody wants to partake. Absolutely. <laughs> Always arrive with extra. <laughs> right, right. So, as you know, I've always felt that um, we needed changes in Randolph Shepard pre-pandemic, and now post-pandemic, as many states are still trying to get back to work in some some ones, and 
you know, we just had a successful blast on the boardwalk and uh, Dimitri was there, GSA, who basically told us these federal buildings are not opening. So we're trying to put some groups together. We had some blind vendors. We have uh, you guys today. And, you know, we have to work together. If we're going to make this work, <clears throat> we got to do this together and be part of a team. So we're going to ask you some questions and get your thoughts on how you feel that uh, we can make a positive change or maybe you're doing the right things in your states. We'd love to hear that. So Terry, fire away. I'm going to pour myself another Manhattan here too. And maybe I get Jim to give me one of the cigars. I'll be okay. <laughs> well, the, the cigar sounds good because the, the winner of the Tennessee Alabama football game, they all, everybody understands the winner, they get to smoke a cigar and Tennessee's not smoked cigars in 15 years until flat until this last month. So, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that cigar. So hey, I'll, this is a question um, more for um, um, maybe Jim and Chris, because you're, because of your extensive uh, business background. Um, what, what, how, how has that transition worked for you coming in from the business world into uh, this program? And, and are there things that you learned from the business world that we could use to advance Randolph Shepard and make it stronger? Um, th th I think this is Chris Terry. Um, yeah, the transition's tough. I'm not going to be, uh, I'll be honest with you. It's a tough transition. I mean, you know, in the private uh, business world, you, you do whatever you want. You do whatever you need to do to get the job done. And it's just not the case, uh, you know, within government work. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just a different thing. Um, and you really need to learn, you know, how to grease the wheels and, and how to make it work. I think it, it, it is it is a tough transition, though. And I, I still, even five years in, find myself shaking my head a lot of times at, at, at things. You know, uh, you know, Terry, we were just talking about, you know, the, uh, the, the ruling about, you know, operating outside of state borders. It's things like that that are, you know, kind of a, a goofball decisions where, you don't have as much of that in the in the private business, so I do I do think it is it's quite a transition, um, you know, coming from that. And and as far as you know, things to to learn, I think Terry, when the last time you were here in Nevada and, and we were at uh, our training, and we started you know breaking down P and Ls and and uh, you know product mixes and costs and cost of goods sold and labor and you know where your direct expenses are coming from. You know, I think you know I enjoy and. and uh, the ability to be able to break down that profit and loss statement and analyze that business, um, you know, a little bit more effectively, um, just because of my background. I mean, that's what, that's what I did, right? I mean, we we're every quarter, every month, every week, we're looking at numbers, you know, to try to maximize the profitability of that business. So I think that that background of it is immensely helpful, especially as we go into whole uncharted territories with how these businesses operate now, right? businesses are slower. What do we need to do? Labor needs to be cut. How does that translate into increased sales, increased profitability? So I, I do think that it has helped me tremendously having that background and that ability to analyze the, the profit and loss statement. Yeah, you guys did a really good job. You had, you had a staff person there that uh, uh, that spoke and on, on profit and loss, and he did a really, really good job um, with, with showing people what to look for and uh, and, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. So that was good. So Jim, what are, you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, uh, thank you, Terry. I, Chris, appreciate your lead on that. I would, I would concur. Uh, my learning curve coming in was really, really fast, really, really hard 
Uh, we had a complex program. We had a lot of challenges. I was here six months before, uh, prior to COVID. So I had just really gotten my feet wet, um, getting a grip on, on what uh, our operations were about. I was deep diving into our financials uh, with different vendors and trying to train them on some of the things Chris just keyed off on uh, that I'd learned in the business. Uh, we were looking at product mix and we were looking at profitability. And one of the key things, key indicators that I was looking at right prior to COVID was I kept asking my vendors why they were only serving 28% of the occupants in their building when the corporate food service or captive audience food service industry averages over 60. And I kept telling them, if you go out and find that other 30 to 35%, you guys are going to get wealthy fast. So why aren't you serving? Um, and it came down to, they didn't understand menu mix. They didn't understand how to pivot. They didn't understand how to adapt. Uh, the leadership might not have had a trusted service in the, servant in the kitchen who could execute their menu ideas. So those are some of the things that we saw. And then the other part that we saw that was the telltale is government employees, uh, you know, hadn't had significant increases in their wages in years. And so when you had a 28, 20 to 25 year employee in a building, you know, their total food allotment for the day might be eight to 10 bucks when the industry was 12 to 15. Translate that to 2022, you're talking uh, 12 to $17 or, you know, 18 to 25 going forward. Um, these are the lessons that have to be, uh, we have to train our operators in. And that's not something that uh, Randolph Shepard necessarily spends a lot of deep dive in. Like Chris, uh, I had years and years and years of training in that. Uh, I also, had, in corporate food service, had 10 years in multi-unit. Multi so I knew how to juggle lots of units at the same time, but teaching those very basics. So for me, that's been a big portion of my work during the COVID time is trying to help our operators understand the importance of those basic building blocks. But it hasn't been easy. It has not yeah. been easy. Yeah, I know. Um, both, of, both of you mentioned COVID. Uh, you know, that's something that we've been living with now for more than two and a half years. And I, and I, and I can remember Nikki and I had conversations, uh, you know, and, and we were thinking that this was a two, three month kind of, kind of deal. And now here we are two and a half years later and we're still feeling the, the impact of the pandemic itself isn't uh, as, as dangerous as it was. The, the after effects are with the, with the teleworking and all that, you know, that's here to stay. Can you just give us a really quick recap of, of, of what the impact has been on your state? And Tyrell, why don't you go first? Absolutely. So um, pre-COVID, we had several cafeterias. Um, we had just signed with uh, one of our local community colleges um, to operate their food service. COVID hit and it has really destroyed our, our, our ability to resume cafeterias. Um, to date, we currently have two cafeterias. Um, both are uh, currently operating at community colleges. We are running cafeterias at seasonal beach locations, which are truly uh, beneficial because you now are capturing a, a public audience. However, uh, you know, the future of cafeterias resuming in state government is, is very bleak in the sense that, to your point, Terry, 
that uh, telework is likely here to stay. I mean, obviously we hope it's not. I mean, we are starting to see slight increases in some of our state government buildings, but not enough to flip the switch and resume back to uh, cafeteria mode. Um, it's certainly a concern of ours. Um, it's something that, you know, I'm constantly trying to stay in touch with uh, these state buildings uh, just to see what, you know, what the climate is like as far as uh, interest or, or the ability to resume. But I truly just don't foresee these cafeterias resuming. Um, and, and I think that's just something that we have to be prepared for. And it's something that I'm trying to prepare uh, our operators to understand. The biggest challenge I can say to date since COVID and now the way we operate is to get operators to understand this is where we are and, and, and to be able to naturally pivot to adjusting from what was once to where we are today. The cafeterias that have closed due to uh, COVID, um, we've, we've transitioned to, to micro markets. So, um, you know, obviously that's a major adjustment for existing operators who've operated cafeterias for umpteen years but this is the realities we're in. So um, there's constant conversations um, with those operators on how to maximize opportunity within the cafeterias. But cafeterias are, are, are tough right now and I don't foresee any time soon uh, um, what, what we once operated to continue, unfortunately. I've said many times when I, when I speak around the country that the people I feel the sorriest for are those people who are sitting back waiting for things to return to normal. And we have, we, we do have a bunch of people thinking that, you know, at some point it's going to be what the way it was before the pandemic. And that's just not the reality we're in. But uh, Chris, how, how, how are you guys doing out there in Nevada with the, with the pandemic? You know, we're, we're, we're coming back. Um, you know, uh, I knew we were going to get together today. So I, I kind of looked at it and looked at uh, the numbers over the last couple of years, just to, to see where exactly what we, what we were doing. You know, right before the pandemic hit, um, we were cruising along at a pretty good rate. And we had 18 total operators, which is high for our state. During the pandemic, eight of those 10 operators left the program. And that is, that's just, that's devastating, right? I mean, you're looking at almost 50%. Four of them actually passed away. Um, two of them retired and, and two of them quit. Uh, and our, our uh, annual uh, program sales were about $9.2 million dollars. Uh, while we were in the throes of the pandemic, we had, we were down to 10 operators and the total program sales went to 4.6 million. And currently we just finished up our uh, state fiscal year a couple months ago. We're back up to 15 operators and about 8.6 million in total program sales. So, um, you know, certainly haven't come back fully, um, but we are making good progress. Uh, we are adding sites, we are adding operators. So we're moving in a positive direction, um, but to concur, with what Tyrell said is, you know, we, we lost probably 10, you know, cafeteria slash snack bar operations. Um, three of them, actually six of them are still closed. Three of them we hope to reopen soon. Uh, three of them we turned into markets and one of them we turned it into vending only. So um, it's, it's different, right? I mean, it's different. We had, um, you know, just to give you an example, um, the DMVs here, we have, we have large DMVs in, in Nevada and we have good snack bar facilities in those DMVs and they serve literally thousands of people a day. Uh, a few months ago, the DMV decided that they were not gonna do walk-ins anymore and they were only gonna do appointments. And that has absolutely crushed the operators in those facilities. And we've seen sales drop 40 to 50% uh, 
because the time a person spends in the DMV now is very minimal. You make an appointment, you go in, when that appointment is, you spend very little time there. There's no time to mill about to get a hot dog or a popcorn or a soda, and then you leave. So, I mean, just, just like everybody else, we're having to relearn everything, right? I mean, what, what comes from that is, you know, labor has to be uh, looked at uh, very aggressively. And, uh, you know, the operators themselves overall probably laid off 10 people, you know, that were working and, you know, getting an income from those jobs. I had to lay them off because, you know, we couldn't afford to do it anymore. So, um, you know, concur with Tyrell said, it's, it's you know, certainly changing. Uh, who knows if it'll come back or not. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to say the same story. Uh, you know, Washington had 23 locations when I arrived pre-pandemic. Two would be, three would be the equivalent of dry stands. The others were espresso bar, snack bar, deli slash full service cafes, all the like across the board. So very highly captive audience driven uh, through the early stages of pandemic, everybody was shut down. We managed to get a couple of them open. Uh, where we stand today, we have seven seven sites actually open. Open. They're running about thirty five percent of the sales that used to be. So eight about an eight million dollar program pre COVID. We're running about one point eight to finish this federal year. Um, we had 17 operators. We're down to 14. So one retired, two bankruptcies, and literally got two or three right on the fence if we keep on going the way we're going because they can't get open. Uh, we have federal buildings in downtown Seattle uh, that were a big part of our cafe space that are still closed. Uh, we here in Olympia, where I live, the state capital, we have eight cafeterias, and that's our bread and butter. And I've got one of the eight open, and it's literally a six-hour deli slash coffee bar doing 600 bucks a day, and they're used to 3000 a day, two employees, and the owners almost out of idle money and every other grant they sought after. So um, not super thrilled. However, governor, our governor lifted all the pandemic restrictions, effective Halloween. So we're hearing we could have a mass influx of people in November back into buildings. Uh, but are they coming back one day a week or five days a week? We all know on this call, in order to make it in the food business, you got to run your restaurant five days a week. Uh, you can't do it on ones and twos. So uh We'll see. And I know we're going to talk about some other adaptive options, so I won't jump the gun on that one. So, okay. I mean, no, we, I we, 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 we could do, go ahead, Nikki. I was going to say, you know, we just did blast on the boardwalk and we did state reports and basically the same reports you gave were from every state. But the one exciting thing that got me was the enthusiasm, the enthusiasm of the people that gave the reports. Most were blind vendors. So some SLAs were there. So, I mean, you know, how we're going to come back, what we want to do. So the enthusiasm is there, which is great. And I know that you guys feel the same way. I know you're all enthusiastic about, you know, you can just tell by what you talked about coming up with ideas. And I was just at a conference in Denver. I just got home this morning from Society of Hospitality and Food Management, which does corporate dining and yeah. stuff. And they had the guy on which they called the goat of food service. He's from Seattle. Um, he did all the Microsoft food service. 
Um, and he, he's doing LinkedIn now around the world. And basically yep. he talked about hybrid is here to stay and um, subsidies. He talked about subsidies that, you know, he and Ellis are basically, you know, done because you don't know if people, if a hundred people are coming in and then 300 the next day and he was giving stuff like that. So he talked about definitely hybrid and definitely uh, subsidies. So I guess that will lead us into, we've talked about the problems and, you know, I think that, you know, let me get you guys another drink and take a puff on the cigar, but let's come yeah. up with some creative ways. What can we do to change, you know, through the bureaucracy, which drives me crazy too, because like you guys know, you know, I grew up and, and spent time in the, in the restaurant business my whole life since I was five years old and then got involved with this great thing called Randall Shepard and made a lot of changes to it. I want to make sure when I leave that it's back in the right direction. So we need leaders like you to lead us that way. So guys, let's hear how we, things you have to do for creative ideas and how we can change this thing up and get more guys back to work. Hey, well, Nikki, I'll, I'll dive in first as Jim. Um, I, I know Mark Freeman, um, and I used to work for a couple people that worked for him at that at that location you referred to earlier in my corporate career. So uh, what I bring to BEP was I was on that site. Uh, I was one of, one of the operators that was on the development team in the early 2000s that started all the incubation that we know today. So uh, where I would lead that is last year in the pandemic, I went to our leadership and said, we have all these closed cafes that are 30 years old. They need to be remodeled. We need to come up with a whole different blend of food service. And uh, I've said on, on a couple RSA calls, we hired, we hired a, a company consultant, uh, oddly enough, that does a lot of the design work at Microsoft and the Googles and those kind of people. And I hired them to write a feasibility study and, and they developed a model and we went to the ledge and uh, this last year and we went to the governor and we actually, Washington State got nine, $9 million from the ledge to renovate the locations I referred to that are closed. Uh, today, we're at 90% design on three of them. And we're essentially stripping those old giant spaces and we are turning them into an Amazon Fresh, Amazon Go kind of environment uh, with a little Starbucks twist. So there'll be multiple shopping experiences. And I literally stole the ideas from Apple, Google, Facebook, and the like, and just converted them into 700 square feet to 1200 square feet into our government buildings, utilizing those strategies. And so uh, the proof will be in the pudding, obviously, when we get them built, but we've got the makings of a model to begin renovating and bringing forth all of those privatization ideas into our space. Um, along the way, we wrote a second budget ask that's at the governor's desk today for another $3 million with the operational money so we can hire an executive chef and an executive restaurant trainer on my team over the next three years as we re rebuild all these facilities so we can actually train our operators at how to execute the design and um, the vision for our future restaurants. So, uh, you know, really thrilled about what's going to happen and total moonshot. And if uh, we just get the rocket launched and we never bring the guys back from the moon, I consider that a huge win. 
So I'm curious, is your, is your, um, are these going to all be just alike or, or very similar operations sort of like a franchise approach or are they all going to be different? Are you, are you customizing? Um, well, the baseline model for BEP is that we are going to look at the franchise and we're going to build all the basic building blocks in the binder and everybody will learn it. Each space will be different and personalized based on its size. So if a vendor comes in out of, fresh out of training and works in a small coffee bar deli for three years and bids on one of the giant facilities later, he can have the full-blown internal shopping experience, a restaurant and a micro market all in one, but they will have to learn all the pieces along the way. Uh, our most experienced vendors obviously uh, we'll be able to pivot right away and, and operate multi-concept because they've been doing it for years. So that's kind of how it's going to work. Um, but we're just going back and going back to the drawing board and start and, and literally redesigning what we believe it should be now and into the future. See, I think the most important thing that I heard you say is that your state is investing its money into not only blind vendor program to create jobs for blind people, but investing to provide a higher quality service to their employees in the state buildings. So, and, and I, I think if we're ever going to modernize this program, states are gonna have to invest money in it. And uh, you know, we, we're starving a lot of these programs to death out there. And um, if, if states just will not invest money in it, it's gonna be hard to do. But Tyrell, you got any ideas for us? I do. I do. Um, well, you know, I think the idea is here. And I think micro markets, um, you know, Nikki Terry, we all were in Chicago, um, in which we went to the National Vending Conference. But I think I think we're we're here. I think the key to increasing opportunity and in, within our program is to help operators envision something that could be whatever they really want it to be. I think the micro market is is genius concept, but the the trouble that I, I I'm seeing out there is getting operators to believe that that structure, that piece of responsibility, could be whatever you want it to be. Right. So essentially, once you cover your food bases, at least in our our uh, current locations. Uh, our state buildings are receptive to anything above and beyond uh, you providing the food option. So if we're going with the grabbing goals, which we currently are, the beverages, the snacks, and so forth, there's so much more you can add into a micromarket. Uh, you know, non-perishable items, the everyday items in which people stop at the store before they go home to can be offered in your micromarket. And so I think the challenge is, is trying to get existing operators to to see much more than the food responsibility. You know, I, I think we are at a point now where we truly need to stretch our opportunity allowance and maximize that, right? I mean, we know that this program's intent was to provide a food service opportunity and vending. Well, we also know with the micro markets, you can essentially put anything you want into that location. So once you cover that base, you, you really can increase your profits tremendously if you just think about the average need of, of your consumer. And I think, you know, a lot of the things that our local CVSs, our local uh, drugstores offer, you can incorporate in your micro market. And I believe the buildings would be tremendously happy to have. Um, we've, we've started doing that. We've started increasing our micro markets with um, 
you know, aspirins and, and feminine products and, and so forth to increase the dollar. Because, you know, my thought is whether you gain a dollar from profit from selling a burger or you gain a dollar profit from selling an aspirin, it's still a dollar. And so, you know, that's where we are. That's kind of what we're um, constantly working on with each operator that's converted to a micromarket is increasing their business offerings. Because I truly believe even with the small population in these buildings, you can still capture you know, much more profit if you look to structure your operation to provide uh, essential products in which you know, each and every one of us use on a daily basis. So we're working on that. We're starting to see increases um, in profitability, but in Connecticut specific, um, we're honing in on, on other things outside of the micro market. We're honing in on seasonal beach locations. We have several of them. We just picked up one during the pandemic, which has done tremendous. Um, and we're proud about that. In addition, we've partnered with Sodexo Foods um, to offer our existing operator a partnership between Sodexo, the state university, um, and, and, and our agency to, to provide a partnership food service opportunity for that oper operator. And Sodexo has been phenomenal um, with, with uh, ex and they've been receptive, I should say, in, in this partnership. And we look forward to hopefully, you know, being able to execute the other food services at the three remaining state colleges in our state. So um, we have our eye on this. We are playing close attention and, and um, ensuring that everything goes well with this current situation to prepare us for possibly the uh, next three state colleges. So um, there, are, there are some good things coming out of this. Um, obviously, you know, overall, when we look at average salary and profits, um, they're much lower than what they were pre-pandemic. However, um, you know, when you, when you think about a micro market, you, you essentially have to also factor in that it's not a 40, 50, 60 hour a week opportunity either. So um, there's a lot less hours being worked. So it is in line with, you know, when you think about time to profit in which what they might, what they were on average of making pre-pandemic, however, um, the numbers aren't there, but, you know, majority of our operators are, are pleased and, and are happy with the fact that they still have continuous opportunity during these times. And we're, we're just working on trying to, you know, uh, kind of trying to run the fine line of uh, what our opportunities and our, our uh, allowances are with the program and trying to stretch it and, and provide and create additional opportunities moving forward. So we've, we've done some good things. We picked up some federal vending routes on the post offices as well. So it's definitely not all bleak. Um, we're constantly trying to move in the right direction, but um, we got some ways to go. And, and I think we're headed definitely in the right direction. I'll pick it up. Chris, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, micromarket, we talked about them. Um, micromarkets are great. Um, they're, they're really fantastic. I think one of the inherent you know, problems though is if you have a cafeteria, you have a snack bar and it's in a public space, you know, you, how do you turn that into a market? I mean, that's, that's the tough part, right? It can't be unmanned because theft will run rampant. And, you know, that's kind of a, a problem. That's, I guess, the biggest area of opportunity with a market. Uh, what we've done in a couple of our facilities is we've just, we've added a cashier, right? So we, we, we purchased a square system. We have a cashier. Uh, typically it's the operator themselves, uh, perhaps an employee one or two days a week. Um, all the, everything in the micro market you would normally see behind closed doors is exactly the way it would be, you know, in the public space. 
it allows not only employees of the building, but the public to come in without that fear of, of theft and still sell everything that they want to sell, reducing their labor, obviously, significantly. So it, it, it's worked out really well. We have one in particular that works out well in, the, uh, in one of our DMVs out here um, that wasn't a, a closed uh, cafe space. So I think that's kind of a, you know, a, a great idea to do you know, with a micro market in a public space. Uh, and I'm sure you guys have all seen, I just recently came back, uh, it was actually here in Vegas, was the uh, National Association of Convenience Stores. So uh, that's a great convention. Uh, you get so many great ideas and, and so many cool things happen there. But, you know, the, the technology piece of that market, uh, I paid particular attention to. And I know you guys have all seen it. We have a couple here in Las Vegas where, you know, whether it's through, you know, Amazon or cameras or whatever it is, but, you know, you go in. The cameras follow you around. There's no employees there. You know, it knows what you take. It knows what you put back. It, it's going to show you what your credit card is going to get charged, you know, before you exit the, the space and, and you can do that all employee free. So I think, you know, that technology, while maybe not quite there yet, is very, very close, um, you know, to kind of ingraining itself within our programs. Um, and I think the other thing you can do is, is, you know, I've been fortunate to work with a really good partner here in, in Nevada, the uh, Clark County Library District. I think you, if you have open and honest conversations with your host agencies and you get somebody that's willing to work with you, uh, you can do really great things. And I, the, the example I'll share is that, you know, we have <clears throat> two cafes in two libraries. And, you know, before the pandemic, libraries were a tough sell, right? I mean, not everybody goes to libraries anymore. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the internet, but I think it's going to catch on and you don't really need to go to libraries <laughs> as much. So even before it was a tough sell and, and Terry's actually been to, to our one in Mesquite and uh, it, the, the sales were, were very poor, but the library really wanted to offer this service for their guests. And <clears throat> they, we were having trouble making you know profitability from them. Uh, so what we worked out is a deal where we will look at our financials each and every month, and I will share those financials with the library, and they will stipend that facility up to SGA, meaning 2260 is SGA right now, right? So if the operator makes less than that, the library will pay them the difference. So if they make zero, the library will cut a check for 2260. If they make a thousand, the library will cut a check for 1260. So the operator is guaranteed a minimum income of, you know, that 2260 a month. And if it changes or when it changes, you know, the library has agreed that whatever it is, that's what they'll match. So um, without their support and those two facilities in particular, we wouldn't be able to open them. They just, they just don't make the sales uh, because it, they're just slow facilities. So again, I just like, you know, any kind of thinking outside of the box like that, having these open and honest conversations with host agencies, you'd be surprised what you can accomplish sometimes. Very cool. Oh, yeah, really good stuff. Um, would you guys, you, you mentioned the, the transition being difficult coming from the food service industry, private industry into state government. Can you just real quickly, I'd, really, I'd be fascinated to know how much time you spend doing bureaucratic administrative stuff versus doing the fun stuff you guys are talking about here. I mean, you know, the stuff you guys are talking about are, you know, the things that really get you pumping and going. I have found in my experience since I left state government, it has gotten more and more difficult. It's gotten more and more bureaucratic and there are more and more people throwing up red roadblocks. Um, 
how much of your time do you get to spend doing the stuff you like to do and in, in building your business and building your program versus all the other drudgery? Um, I'd say, Terry, that I probably spend 50 to 60% of my time on the drudgery and probably, you know, 40 to 50% on the, on the stuff I, I really, really like. So it, it may not be a bad, you know, number. I mean, obviously I'd rather it be 90, 10, but I, I think you're right in that there are more roadblocks. There, there is more, uh, you know, resistance these days. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite unfortunate. Um, but I, I yeah, I probably spend, you know, 50 to 60% of my time uh, dealing with the nonsense as I like to call it. This is Jim. I'm, I'm right there with, with Chris uh, from day one. It was learning that just uh, the regs, the paperwork. And I have a small team. I only have three people, um, two outside of me, a program specialist and a contracts person. And so, you know, I like to be out in the field and my field time was very minimal getting to know people before the pandemic, working from home. Obviously, I didn't have a lot of field time. I had a lot of FaceTime via Zoom and the phone, uh, but I spent 50, 60 percent now because I bought off of this huge complex construction project, uh, I find that another 20% all of a sudden magically is dealing with our state department of enterprise services facility people and going through all the crazy hoops to do construction. So mm -hmm. a kitchen, a kitchen remodel that used to take me four to six months tops are going to take anywhere from 10 to 18 months. Um, and so that was a bog down. And I mean, this week alone, it's, today's only Wednesday, I've already had, you know, nine of my 40 hours have been consumed in meetings that I used to not have. And so I'm still productive, but who's paying me to be productive and, and keep the juices going? I keep right. them going. But the question, the question for all of us is how do we maintain the juices and that vision if we're stuck over in all of that uh, administrative stuff that other people could and are capable of doing for us, but we lack the resources. How about you, Tyrell? I would say, honestly, probably 40%. Um, I, I wouldn't quite say 50. Um, at times, it probably exceeds 50 a lot of it has to do with the mass influx of retirement that has occurred in the state government in Connecticut. Um, certain departments have lost a substantial amount of staff. We were fortunate enough not to lose anybody directly within our program. So with that being said, obviously just years of experience in certain positions allows me to kind of keep the ball rolling as much as possible to ensure uh, we get things moving. But I'd say 40%. We have, I have a pretty strong team um, all, you know, from just, you know, my, my, my field staff, um, our vending, you know, our vending uh, supervisor, uh, our, our legal staff. So a lot of times um, what I find myself doing is trying to build relationships and in turn, which will allow for, you know, future execution of opportunities. So um, I'm not spending much time. I'm, I'm kind of trying to focus on the future, trying to just get my name out there, trying to get our program out there. Um, working closely with VR, trying to get new blood into the program. That's one good thing about our program is that majority of the operators in there have had such long-standing careers. So with knowing that any any week, any month, someone could retire, I'm trying to alleviate or eliminate the need to 
permanently close a facility and have someone on, you know, on deck. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of relationship building, uh, which in turn, hopefully will pay, will pay off in the future. So in the last issue of the Blitz, we, met, we gave a, a, a statistic that was really mind boggling. Um, went back and counted, and I think it like in the last 15 months or so, there have been 19 state director vacancies. 19 of you, you guys wow. have left the position. Uh, and there are currently, uh, you know, as we are recording, nine vacancies um, out there right now. It's hard to build a program when you have that kind of a turnover, but it's really, really difficult. Um, we talk about the, there's, there's a natural um, resentment or between small business and government regulations. And we, ha we have our regulations. We have to deal with those regulations and they regulate our sm small businesses that don't have to be operated by, by blind vendors. We've asked RSA to modernize the regulations and we're really pushing them to, 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 to consider doing that. Um, if, if, you had, if you had one thing you'd wanna tell RSA that they need to change in their regulations, what might that be? I could start that one off. Um, this is Tyrell. I would say strengthen, strengthening what, strengthening what now, you know, um, Terry, as you know, we, we tried to go for the uh, Coast Guard uh, earlier this year or late last year. Um, and we, you know, we lost uh, fair and square be, uh, through bidding process, but there was just a lot of, a lot of static and just getting our priority recognized from the start. And, you know, I, I, I think I've said this since day one is that here's a law, here's a federal regulation in which clearly states we should have first right opportunity, state, federal, municipal locations. But yet when we go for these big opportunities, we're, we're fighting the fight just to get in at the, at, the, at the desk, you know, just to get to the table of conversation. And, and so it, it bogs my mind that it's such a fight when this is law. So if there was one thing I would change, it would just language that strengthens the priority would make for just, I think, an easier transition um, and, and the allowance of bigger opportunities in which we're constantly fighting for, um, you know, every few years. So. That would be my my suggestion. Yeah, Chris or Jim. I, yeah, I, Terry, I I, I echo Terrell's sentiments. I, I just more consistency with it with the priority, right? I'll give you a couple, you know, a couple examples. One big example right now is, uh, you know, our best, biggest and best uh, operators are at the Hoover Dam. Okay, the, the Hoover Dam is six million tourists a year. We have four operators down there doing a bang up job. Um, it's, it's run by the host agency is the Bureau of uh, Reclamation, but ultimately it's the Department of the Interior. There's another federal facility here in town called Red Rock. It's about 4 million visitors a year, hiking trails and things like that. Uh, it is run by the Bureau of Land Management, which also falls under the Department of the Interior. At Hoover Dam, we operate just fine. At Red Rock, there is a gift store there that's operated by a nonprofit. Uh, it's been that way for 30 years. I don't know how, I don't know why. Uh, we try to get it, we get static left and right. Uh, we try to even let them be and add services to that, add food and beverage services to the welcome center there. We get static, they won't let us in. It's been 25 months 
since my initial conversation with the state director of Bureau of Land Management here in Nevada, where he said that he would like to see us work out some kind of partnership. And in 25 months, nothing has been done. And it's ultimately frustrating to have two federal facilities, both run by the Department of the Interior, and operate as if they're totally and completely different. So anything that, that we could get more consistency, and that, that's just one example here in Nevada. And, you know, we have several, uh, you know, examples, you know, nationwide where, you know, some states have these facilities, some states have these type of facilities, you know, we don't, or we do. Why, why is it so, you know, why is it so different state to state dealing with this, the same agencies? All right. So that, that would be, I, I agree with, with Tyrell. Anything that, you know, I guess gives us a, a stronger position with these agencies would, would be helpful. Without having to go through arbitration. Correct. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we forgot the main part. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, 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 I mean, we can exert our priority, but you know, we may have to spend $100,000 just right. going through the arbitration process, which we know we're going to win. And they uh, right. we still have to go through it. Uh, Jim, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I, I heard what the guy said. I would agree. We, um, you know, federal stuff. I think the one thing for me, uh, when I look to the modernizing regulations and different things, we, you know, our whole process, our whole training, the whole spirit of the regulation is so outdated. They need to put a caucus together to bring it up to 2022. And the most important piece of that is while we redo some of the regs, and, and I know uh, NABM has been fantastic, right? It's time for them to put seed money into us, each and every state that has a stake in Randolph Shepard to build our program up. So when I said, I want to create a training, a modernized training program, I should be able to apply for that $2 million grant to build a modernize, right? Let's, let's, let's do it in flux. Uh, money's going into everything you can possibly think of around the country to, to, to rebuild or build back or build better, whatever the term might be. But like this is one of the very basic ones that's been around for a long, long time. And, you know, it's like we're the rotten stepchild. So um, show me the money, baby. <laughs> so I want to wrap up for Nikki closes this out, but I want to wrap up with a, a, one question, sort of lump two or three things in together here. We've talked a lot about um, you know, about going beyond food. I mean, the Randolph Shepard Act talks about other goods and services. It's not just food. Um, so we, we have the option of doing things outside of food. We've talked about going into the private sector. You know, the Randolph Shepard Act allows you to go up and open up businesses uh, in the private sector. Uh, and we've talked about doing things outside of Randolph Shepard to create entrepreneurship. I want to give each of you just a moment to, to address one or all three of those uh, as far as you know, what you think we can do in those areas. I, I did a project a number of years ago in the inner city in Phoenix where we had a private public partnership. Um, you know, to, we built a huge modernized food service warehouse gardens for training students and kids and in, in the inner city and where food came from and all that and it was a public piece of land owned by a school district but we got a private entity to finance the whole thing and lead the project and provide the seed money to do what i described um that was 12 years ago 
Since that time, they've converted 40 acres of old school soccer fields into uh, gardens to create food in the food in a food desert in Phoenix for the for the community. I think in our world, we have the opportunity to do a lot of that same kind of stuff creatively. Um, there's a lot of smaller corporations out there that want to have food service that can't get the Aramark, Sodexos, Compass Groups of the world. And I, that's where we can step in and, and go do that um, when they build that new tower. So that's one idea. The one that I see that's untapped is senior senior dining or HUD, HUD housing, where you got a giant apartment complex in a city. You could build a small grocery store in the lobby that we've been talking about, a snack bar, dry stand or whatever it is, and get HUD to pay for it, pay us to be there, to, to provide a grocery store to the clients uh, in subsidized housing. I, I see that as a huge opportunity to flex our muscle. Yeah, I think, I think Gary, we, we talked about, you know, you and I have talked about, had several conversations about, you know, a central warehouse or a commissary. I think that still remains a possibility, especially as we move more into micro markets, you know, when you're looking at prepackaged foods and things like that. I mean, if we had a, a you know, a location like that, that housed all that, basically a master distributor, if you will, right, that had the potential to do, you know, prepackaged items, prepackaged foods, all the chips, all the candies, all the sodas, you know, run, run by a blind operator. I mean, that would that would create a ton of jobs. Uh, it probably could be a business for several operators. And I, I think that, you know, that's a great opportunity to do that. I mean, we have a captive you know, program where everybody's buying Coca-Cola, everybody's buying Pepsi, everybody's buying Doritos and Snickers. You know, let's let's take that opportunity and expand on it. Where's everybody getting it from? Well, why instead of getting it from U.S. Foods or Cisco or anybody else, let's get it from ourselves. You know, and and create that business there. Uh, prior to the pandemic, we had looked at, and and the pandemic really wrecked. You know, dry cleaners for everybody because you got to wear. You know, you get to wear sweatpants to work these days, but. You know, we have looked at dry cleaning lockers in, in government facilities, and we're real close to implementing that. Um, you know, you can third party that out. You can uh, get the chemicals from a third party and all that stuff. So we had looked at, at dry cleaning lockers. Um, it's not so much of a great idea anymore, just because, like I said, dry cleaning in itself, I know I, I go less. Um, so maybe not as much there. And then, you know, obviously here we have, you know, a couple retail locations um, we have a gift store at the on the um, two gift stores at the Hoover Dam, one on the Arizona side, at least for now, and uh, one on the Nevada side. And, and you know, they're, they're strictly retail uh, souvenirs and things like that. So, uh, you know, maybe there's other opportunities for, for uh, businesses such as such as that. But, um, you know, like I said, I've always been intrigued and, and really loved the, the central warehouse commissary idea. And I will piggyback. This is Tyrell. I, I would piggyback off of Chris. I, I think that's a phenomenal idea. Um, with that question, I initially didn't have a, a solid answer, but I think that makes the most sense as we as we are turning towards micro markets, um, and and with inflation being what it is now, and um, and probably here to stay, it's very difficult to essentially tap into anything as a quote unquote small business. I mean. Big companies are essentially eating up small businesses daily. You know, if you're not partnering or figuring out how to kind of, you know, be on the back of someone with a larger budget and, and ability to purchase things at, at, a, at a smaller cost, it's very difficult to start small business. However, 
um, keeping the dollars within the program with that um, centralized commissary idea would be phenomenal as we're heading into these micro markets. So I actually like that. And, and I may take that back with me to see if that's something that, <laughs> you know, our, our program could maybe start up. As you all know, or may not know, we operate under a statewide vending contract. So therefore, you know, our programmatic dollars are generated through the vending machines supported by the partnership. So um, not to say that money's not an issue, it's always an issue in anything you do. However, um, our struggles as of late aren't so much programmatic dollars, but it's more um, in the area of finding operators who want to continue to be part of this program. Um, in addition, being able to provide opportunities that are appealing. And you know what we do all know is that these regulations were written some time ago, and this that was just such a yesterday's allowance. And we are heading into technology, we're there today, and so even the kids and the younger generation that are coming up, their interest in our program, at least in our state, I'll speak for Connecticut, isn't as strong as it once was. Um, you know, I've been in the program 17 years. I've seen years in which we had a, uh, you know, a bench, we would call it, of operators, you know, interest to the point now where I'm constantly reaching out to our vocational rehabilitation program to see if there's any candidates that possess the skill and have the interest of doing this type of, you know, uh, food service work. And, and there isn't. And so, but there's the interest of doing something with technology. And so I think, you know, if we can do something, it should definitely be in the realm of expanding opportunities that uh, are in line with, you know, technology, which really grasps the interest of a new generation of, of uh, individuals. So, um, that, no, I, I, I I second good, good, good ideas good ideas guys i've enjoyed hooking up to you guys at nikki's bar and grill uh nikki appreciate you hosting this well, hey, if he's hosted why am i getting a bill let me put the credit card back in the wallet gotta make a profit you guys are welcome i mean you guys always bring i always like to discuss this stuff and talk about you know fresh new ideas and you know, uh, Terry and I have talked about for years of putting together a, a think tank, um, the, the play ball winning team, some kind of sports team that we'll have, putting leaders together in the Randall Shepherd community. And one thing that I told Terry was we need leaders outside of the Randall Shepherd community, whether it's young, young, young youth uh, to see what their what their thoughts and what their trends are in, in food. We have to think outside of food. Um, and like I, you know, like you said, Jim, Mark Freeman, I, I had actually sat and had lunch with him yesterday. You know, he didn't have ideas. He, he didn't have some of these ideas. So, but he, he was thinking about it and he, and, and stuff. And, and that's what we got to do. We got to get in the room. We got to start thinking about it, you know, outside of food service. And we also got to get it that Randall Shepard checks a box. We know that big things now are minority owned businesses, women owned businesses, disabled owned businesses. Um, better known businesses, but we got to know that Randall Shepard can check those boxes too, so that we can compete on contracts like that. You know, we talk about commissaries that Tennessee has 48. We don't have another one in the United States. We got to figure out where we have priority and take Tennessee's model and open up opportunities and, you know, look at the military for, for vending and micro markets and military bases to do stuff there. So I think there's things that, that get excited about it. So thank you for coming and having a drink and a cigar and, 
you know what, hopefully we can do this, this again soon and see each other, you know, in person again and get some of these conversations going and let's get some people back to work and let's get out and get creative. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you for being part of our We Are Randall Shepherd podcast. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I got to get a server and get me something to eat now. <laughs> me too. I'm starving. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, guys. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Well, I thought that was very exciting to hear from three different uh, SLAs around the country, three that people may not know from Washington State, from Nevada, and uh, Connecticut. I thought their enthusiasm was great. I think some of the ideas are great. I think that this is, I think that Randall Shepard's in good good hands. And I think that um, we're, we're excited about that. And we look forward to the next podcast or one of them coming up that will have uh, women entrepreneurs to talk about Randall Shepard in the future, too. Your thoughts, Terry? Yeah, I thought it, I, I was really pleased with it. Uh, uh, you know, they were really engaging. Uh, we learned a lot. And, um, you know, a lot of people around the country don't know those three gentlemen. And uh, to, um, you know, so they so they got to hear some of the stuff that we hear when we're out there, um, you know, in the field. So I thought it was I thought it was great. Uh, you know, I like the idea. You know, you mentioned the, the think tank or, or innovation conference and invitation only innovation conference. Um, and you know, that's something that can be, can be really, really exciting. And, uh, uh, you know, it, I don't know if we have room for all three of those guys, but boy, they, you know, we, we, we want, we, we want at least one of them there, but, uh, yeah, yep. great idea to, great idea to bring them over to your bar and get them, get them liquored up so they're open up and talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> and make some money while we're at it. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'll talk to you soon. All right, Nikki, we'll, we'll see you later, man. The We Are Randolph Shepherd podcast would like to thank our sponsors, the National Association of Blind Merchants, Coca-Cola, Sodexo, Three Square Markets, You Select It, Southern Food Service, Tyler Technologies, and Translucent. If you would like to support the We Are Randolph Shepherd podcast, we would love to have you on board. Corporate sponsors may contact Nikki Gakos at NikkiColorado.Netscape.net. Individuals who would like to support the podcast may do so by donating to the National Association of Blind Merchants at www.BlindMerchants.org. We would love to have your support.